Welcome to the Akashic Reading Podcast, presented by AkashicReading.com, the place where you can learn to access your soul's wisdom, or at least stop digging the hole any deeper. I'm your host, Terry Uctana, and today we'll be unlearning what we know about ancient Egypt, looking at what about them and their wisdom is available via the Akashics, and how to lay a healthy foundation for working with all their culture has to offer. Spiritual community is full of those who are called to work with gods or goddesses not associated with their current culture. This can be consciously, through intuition, desire, and messages from spiritual guides, or through dreams, synchronicities, random events, and even strangers who reach out and say, I was told you needed this. In this age of information, technology, and globalization, the gods and goddesses are no longer bounded by their local culture or geography. As we've become individuals making choices within layers and layers of community, connection, and affiliation, the gods and goddesses have moved to working in a more individual way, healing a rift between the numinous and the mundane created by urbanization, industrialization, and the scientific perspective. This means you don't have to be a person of Egyptian descent or an Egyptologist to feel drawn to ancient Egyptian culture or the gods and goddesses which formed and peopled it. Those who have suffered childhood or domestic abuse will find lions in Sekhmet making herself known as a protector who offers her strength. Others who are lost and wanting to find their true home may seek the advice of Osiris, who is evergreen and regenerating. Some might be called to the wisdom of Horus, who sees the greater patterns of things and yet is able to participate in them as a leader. And there are those who feel most comfortable with the intellectual wisdom of Toth, who forms and manages just laws and civil society. In fact, except for the Greek and Roman gods of antiquity, the Egyptian deities are the ones Western culture knows best, so it makes sense we would be drawn to them. Children are taught the most common Egyptian deities in much the same way we teach them about various exotic animals. Over there is Isis and Osiris and Horus and Toth, and these are lions, tigers, elephants, and zebras. This is what they look like, sound like, and mean. Now, on to recess. Having experienced this myself, there's a part of me which feels the process is normal and natural, but looked at from a purely educational perspective, it's amazingly odd. In the U.S., we're taught age-appropriate misinformation about ancient Egypt throughout our early years as somehow important, for what I'm not sure, and practically nothing about Mexico or any other South American culture, and certainly nothing about Canada, which is a day's drive for most of the country. We get very little of our own history, and most of that so watered down and propagandized, it's less than useful. But everyone can identify the pyramids and the Sphinx. Yay? The upshot of this is people know a little bit, mostly wrong, about ancient Egyptian deities, culture, and spirituality, but then they get a calling to know more about Egyptian healing practices, ceremonies, or energy work. Being a lost culture, one which died out leaving us very little written work and mostly artifacts, 
there's no easy access to further information. You have only a couple of clear options. Go to school, become an Egyptologist and argue with other Egyptologists about the meaning of this glyph or that inscription, or locate a New Age mystery school which purports to teach the truth behind the facts. Often these schools are well-meaning, attempting to bridge the gap between what is known and what can be gleaned through various shamanic practices, but the results can be confusing, impractical, and seemingly disconnected from the rest of embodied life. What I've found through my years of working in the Akashics is everything ancient Egyptian is readily available in the Akashics. The Akashic Library has wings full of information on Egyptian culture from all the various periods. Prehistoric Egypt, which is prior to 3100 BC, Nakata III, the Early Dynastic Period, Old Kingdom, First Intermediate Period, Middle Kingdom, Second Intermediate Period, New Kingdom, Third Intermediate Period, Late Period, and Ptolemaic Egypt, which is 305 to 30 BC. There are also sections in the Akashic Library about ancient Egyptian daily devotions, ceremonies, politics, reincarnation, healing practices, beer making, building techniques, and so on. There are temples in the Akashic city for most of the deities, as well as areas, much like the lotus pools where Hindu and Buddhist deities reside, where each deity allows their energy to create a welcoming space for other beings to interact with them. Also, as each individual embodied soul has their own Akashic room, which serves as a safe meeting place, this is an area where Egyptian information can be pulled in, or the deity can be invited to come and interact. Each of us also has access to a personal temple, which is sometimes a more comfortable place for working with such numinous beings. What blocks people from using any or all of this is not methods or skills, but instead their childhood education. It's a bit like haunted houses at Halloween or magicians putting on a magic show. Your underlying assumptions about how the world works and what you're experiencing leads your mind to make meanings and connect dots which are wrong. Hence, peeled grapes turn into eyeballs, doves fly out of empty hats, and the harmless fun of jump scares. As a side note, this is something abusers, narcissists, and con artists take advantage of in order to use us for their own gain. They lean into our underlying assumptions about situations, ourselves, and others, so we're misdirected into seeing what we expect to see and not what we don't or don't want to. General education about ancient Egypt, the stuff we get in childhood, is based not on Egyptian texts or even faded traditions handed down through family lines. Instead, myths, stories, and histories are pulled from Greek and Roman writers, publishing decades after Rome conquered Egypt. These come from the perspective of the winner, and take the tack that all Egyptian deities are really naive versions of the Greek gods. With what we now consider a colonial perspective, Greek and Roman historians of the period had no interest in or access to the Egyptian culture which developed in co-creation with these beings, nor their lived intimate relationships to them. The British fascination with Egypt and archaeology in the 18th century added another layer to this by making all things ancient Egyptian both exotic and possessable. 
Hence, we can see traveling exhibits of Tutankhamun's possessions without having any idea of who he was, what they mean, or any of the spiritual energies flowing through them. So, while people are able to access information about ancient Egypt, the foundation they have for understanding it is minimal and a bit toxic. So, how do you go about building a better Egyptian foundation? To understand Egyptian healing practices, spiritual gifts, and the mysteries gifted to us by the deities, it helps to understand the symbols and associations they work with. Let's start with Father Earth. For ancient Egypt, the land is either dry, barren desert or rich silt left by the Nile. In either case, it wasn't a nurturing force in and of itself. There was no sense of Mother Gaia looking out for everyone and being abundant. The earth was seen as Ged, the cosmic seed waiting for the right conditions in order to bring forth life. This was brought on by Osiris, the river Nile, who flooded to bring rebirth and renewal, then died again. There's Mother Universe, however. The sky was seen as female, in the form of Nut. She provides the matrix in which the seed can survive and thrive, hence she is pictured as arched over the land in a downward dog pose providing from her breasts and watching over everything. One of the more surprising symbols is the sun or Ra. The sun was experienced not as benevolent, but a bit like a tyrannical Santa Claus. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. You can't get away from him because he's omniscient, so be good for goodness sake. For the Egyptians, the sun kills as much as it provides. It decimates through drought as much as it helps to cook food and create bricks. Then there's the benevolent force of water. Where we in Western culture experience the earth as our foundation, and all the other elements work with or against it, creating warmth, carrying nutrients, and providing us oxygen. In Egypt, the foundation for their life was water. It was the means for surviving the sun, for growing food, and for speedy travel. If you could survive the deadly hippos and the hungry crocodiles, it was a bit like a Japanese bullet train, getting you where you needed to go in the shortest time possible. And then there's religion. In ancient Egyptian, there was no separate word for religion or spirituality. Like most indigenous cultures, they didn't separate out their spiritual practices from the mundane. It was all just living. Hence, pharaohs were seen both as political rulers high priests, and gods. Healing was holistic in that it included surgery to correct physical ailments, spiritual practice to work with energies, mental health support, and emotional connection. Our experience of things being separated into mundane and spiritual, physical and energy, emotional and factual, simply didn't exist back then. This foundation works as a key code for those who are interested in or are currently working with ancient Egyptian healing techniques, especially color and sound healing. Western culture associates specific meanings to the various colors which all children are taught and often we come to assume are universal. Like white means good, pure, and healthy, while black is evil, dark, and death. These notions are not universal as seen in Asian culture, where black is associated with yin, good, and the earth, while white is the color of death and mourning. In ancient Egypt, green was life and rebirth. Blue was the most precious and the color of life force. 
Metallic gold was the sun and power and holiness, while yellow could be the color of death and barrenness. Color and sound were understood to be two sides of the same healing modality, one being information and the other the physical life force or akasha. Hence, healing could be provided through a harmony of sounds and colors coordinated to support the patient in healing all levels of being. Healers who want to translate this healing modality into a modern practice should delve into the ancient Egyptian understanding of ecology, colors, vibrations, sound, and the soul. When it comes to Egyptian spiritual wisdom, just as with spirit guides, archangels, and wisdom elders from across the veil, the gods and goddesses of ancient Egypt exist, and we're able to work with them if we approach them with respect and humility. Each has wisdom to share about how this world works, the lessons we're here to learn, and how to unfold more of our soul's potential and wisdom. Part of showing respect for them is to start your own journey of discovery about who they've been. This can mean searching the internet so you can get the full story rather than the Disney version of their myths and legends. It can be digging a bit deeper to find translations of whatever texts or research is currently available. It can extend as far as traveling to Egypt and experiencing for yourself their temples, monuments, and territories, even though these have been transformed by politics and water necessities over time. When you feel you're ready, or when they feel you're ready, you can make contact. As I mentioned, there are a variety of ways this can be done. And like all beings, the gods and goddesses are multifaceted beings which defy simple descriptions or easily defined roles. What little we know of Isis shows her to be a model for how untended grief brings chaos and its negative consequences. She's the actual throne of Egypt and wears it as her own personal symbol on her head. She's the embodiment of magic or the use of akasha to make her will manifest in the world. She is steadfastness to counterbalance Osiris and his ever-changing nature. And she's a role model for all those who wish to release the expectations of others and create a life for their own best and highest good. For those who wish to connect with Isis or to work through manifesting a partner, I've put a guided meditation on my YouTube channel called Goddess Isis. I'll leave a link in the podcast description. As with all my guided meditations, they're meant to be multi-purpose, including use in ceremony, healing, personal reenactments, and so on. I therefore don't include any instructions or methods for how to get into the meditative state. Feel free to use whatever method you prefer. Whether you're called to all things Egyptian or just have this nagging curiosity from time to time, working with the Akashics can help you get what you need, understand what you get, and show you how to apply it in this modern embodied life. And that's all the time we have this week. If you're interested in knowing more, check out my website, akashicreading.com. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it by subscribing on Patreon. You can see all my other offerings and get regular updates about what I'm working on at patreon.com slash Thanks. Bye.